Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. My name is Known Wells. I am the creator and host of this show. I'm also the founder of the Feely Human Collective, where we collectively and individually grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional curiosity. We've gone on feely hikes together. We've led workshops on self-care and grief and empathy. We've written beautiful stories together. We're doing this collectively because we love each other and because we care. We want to move the needle. We want to have those small moments spread out over time, making a difference. And uh, that's what you are. That's what you're doing as a feely human, leading with your heart, bringing more nuance and compassion and curiosity into the world. I appreciate you. Anyways, you can learn more about the Feely Human Collective at feelyhuman.co. This episode of the podcast is episode 218, and it's with Jacqueline Trumbull. We talk about The Bachelor, a show that I've never watched, but Jacqueline was a guest on it in season 22. We talk about how that experience for Jacqueline was like psychological skydiving. And it was a, to use her words, a cataclysmic event. We talk about the sheen of Hollywood and how fame is maybe perhaps inherently traumatizing. We talk about finding love in the midst of a global pandemic. We talk about what lights Jacqueline up in the world of psychology. Jacqueline is is in a clinical psychology PhD program at Duke. We talk about borderline personality disorder and a sense of identity. And we dig deep into the Bachelor verse, uh, which is a verse that I don't know much about. And it was really interesting and exciting to hear about Jacqueline's experience there. Um, we talk about so much. Uh, you'll just have to listen. It's great. I love this conversation. Follow Jacqueline on Instagram at Trumbolina. That's T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L-I-N-A. And uh, give her podcast a follow and listen. Her podcast, along with Dr. Kibby McMahon, is called A Little Help for Our Friends. Give it a listen. It's great. And uh, this is a great episode, too. I hope you enjoy this. Last thing I wanted to say before we get to the conversation with Jacqueline is one very big, exciting thing is happening coming up on April 4th. Yes, April 4th, less than a month away, I am launching a pre-sale, a limited release pre-sale of my Dear Childhood Me journal, which is like 
love notes to your inner child. It's something I've been working on for a while. I'm very excited about it. I'm very nervous about it. Mark your calendars, April 4th. For for a month, I will be pre-selling this, which means I'm not like ordering a bunch of inventory in advance. I'm only selling it during this period of time. And so if you are someone who wants to explore your inner child, if you are someone who likes adorable journals, if you uh, work uh, at an office, in HR, uh, if you work uh, as a therapist, etc., mental health organization, this is a resource for you. Um, if you want to reach out to me and learn more about it, uh, feelyhuman at gmail.com is the way to do that. Um, I'm very excited. It's it's something I'm deeply passionate about. I will be announcing the pre-sale page very soon. But if you want to be a part of the launch team, even reach out to me, feelyhuman at gmail.com. I could use all the help I can get. Remember, it's just me doing this thing, doing this podcast, doing this Feely Human Collective stuff. It's me. So um, I need your help. We are a collective. We are a community. And I thank you for your help. <laughs> I was going to say service, but that felt weird. Anyways, let's get to the episode, shall we? This is episode 218 on psychological skydiving into The Bachelor with Jacqueline Trumbull. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights and the darks we face as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm humbled to be here with the host of A Little Help for Our Friends podcast, a member of the Bachelorverse and PhD student in clinical psychology. It's Jacqueline Trumbull. Hello, Jacqueline. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my goodness. So so happy to have you. So happy to have you in the the empathy verse, the feely verse, if you will. Um, let's kick off with a, an emotional check-in. How are you okay. feeling? How are you feeling? Um 
Well, I guess the point, normally I would say I'm good, I'm fine, <laughs> but it sounds like the point of this is to be as honest and open as possible. Yes, dig deeper, my friend. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm very tired. Um, my, I actually honestly went off my SSRI this week accidentally because I ran out and then the pharmacy closed because there was a snowstorm. So I've been in like a bit of an emotional roller coaster this week, um, but it's, uh, I think it'll be fine tomorrow. Essentially, it's just it's interesting because I haven't felt like I haven't felt those lows in a long time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that that's happened to me before. I'm I am also on an anti anti. I don't know if you said antidepressant, but I'm on an antidepressant. I've been yep. well, like oh shit! I the next morning I'm like I was supposed to take that. My my Tuesday little slot in my pill case is still full. Shit! I fucked up. Yeah. And I'm off. I'm totally off and it feels weird. And yeah, I know that feeling and it's hard. Yeah. I was off for about three and a half days, something like that. Um, and it was just such a massive like crash of sudden depression, mm. but it was nice because I'm like, I know what this is. There's no threat here. You know, I'm just going to mm. let myself be emotional and sad and down. Such a good insight for the day. And then I'll be back. So, yeah. A reminder yeah. of, Oh, I've been here before. I didn't die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love that. Exactly. I love that. Um yeah, I uh I'm glad that you uh it's funny the sort of the responses we have to these questions of how are you feeling? They are often right fine or I'm good or the the words that we use to simply want to kind of I don't know. We're it's a passerby, we want to keep going or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, right? And I don't know. I think it's useful and beautiful to create space to, I don't know, get real, authentic, mm-hmm. talk about the real stuff that's going on in our hearts. You know, it's it matters. Yeah. Well, Thank it's you. very easy to feel like, oh, I don't want to bum people out right now, or oh, it's not really necessary to talk about. So I'm sort of interested in, in your podcast for that reason, because it's the opposite point, it seems. Like. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, I've learned in my own healing journey from anorexia, depression, you know, all the trauma, all that stuff. We grow in connection with others, right? Like we mm-hmm. can't do it alone. We need each other. We need that perspective. We need the sort of unconscious bias and conscious bias dismantling that happens in those connections and in those safe spaces. And if we if we show up and continue to say fine or good or whatever, that's continuing the agenda, continuing the legacy of like not talking about this stuff, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm I, I lead a discussion section right now for abnormal psychology, and the kids are really struggling. Like mm. college students right now, they're missing their entire college experience because of COVID. They're struggling to pay attention and get good grades, and they're just talking about how they really crave connection and empathy and validation, but they don't know how to get it because it yeah. feels, they, they know that they have to put themselves out there, but it feels scary to do so and answer just that simple question. Honestly, how yeah. are you? It's hard. And it's hard, especially I watched, um, I don't know if you're a queer eye fan, but um, mm-hmm. the latest, I, I'm just in love with that show. And the latest <laughs> season has an episode uh, with, um, they they go to the high school. Did you see that? And they set up a prom. I haven't seen this season. Oh my yet. goodness! It's, so it's next. <laughs> I won't spoil too much, but like they set up a prom, and and hearing these kids talk about how they've been robbed of that connection, of that experience, mm-hmm. and just seeing their joy and like being able to like 
go to this communal event and connect with other students was just like, ah, oh, my heart, my heart breaks. You know,、yeah. we need it. We need that stuff. I was just thinking today about how sad I would have been to miss out on college, and then I was thinking about high school. I'm like, what I've been sad to miss out on high school. I don't know. That might have <laughs> know, been the other、right? nights. <laughs> I know. I I feel. I yeah. I know. High school was like,、mm, I could have skipped that one. That would have been fine. Yeah. How have you been with the pandemic and COVID and that connection piece? Has that been? I mean, obviously, you're in a doctorate program right now, so you're you're kind of heads down, but. How's that connection piece been? It's been fine.、Um, COVID hasn't been a bad experience for me. I've somehow been spared the illness. First of all, I, I don't know if I was asymptomatic early on, but、um, I've still been getting together with people. And I got, you know, I, I mean, I met my partner like two months before COVID, and now we're engaged. So that whole relationship component happens. So that's okay. What COVID really represented for me was that it collided. With me moving out of New York City and into North Carolina, and then getting into my、mm. uh, really, really first and only serious relationship, so I was going through this whole like identity shift along with COVID, and COVID exacerbated that because suddenly, you know, I, when I wasn't spending much time with people that first year,、mm-hmm. so suddenly I was very grounded in this house with a partner, and we're spending all day every day together. And I was used to and loving being like a New York City single,、mm-hmm. single girl going、sure. out every night. So I had a lot of anxiety around that tradition, around that transition. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. What a quite the、uh, relationship test <laughs> in、uh-huh. sort of like all of a sudden we're in it. We're here every day, twenty four seven. Yeah, and we our first year was. Kind of bad. I mean, it was really. We broke up at the end of it. It was really rough. But I don't know if maybe like, I mean, the COVID accelerated things so much and made、mm. us so much more serious that it may have also brought us together in the end. And now I know I can be with this person all the time, and not not want to go away.、Now. So yeah, we're engaged. That's amazing. Yeah. When I first met Jessica, we've been married for. Eleven years, almost twelve, together for almost fifteen, and one of the first within six months of meeting each other, we took a road trip up to Alaska. So we were in the car, stinky, you know, <laughs> road trip farts, you know, all that stuff for seven days, and it was, I, it was like one of those moments where I was like, oh yeah, this is this feels right, you know, like there's not many people I can do this with,、yeah. certainly can do this with her, yeah. Yeah, for me, I had to get over a lot of discomfort around being in a committed relationship,、mm. and I was kind of waiting for that watershed moment of, oh, I know, like this is the one. But for me, that always would happen in reverse. It would be like I'd fall super hard, and then I'd pull way back.、Mm. Um, and so this was an experience of falling super hard, pulling way back, and then kind of crawling back, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.、Um, and and just realizing, learning how to value different. Things and value the relationship itself, and not just the shiny exterior of the person, but the、mm. values and the collab. You know, the collaboration and how we treat each other. Yeah.、Um, but yeah, that was that was hard. <laughs> It's hard. That's. I mean, relationships are hard. Period. Rom- romantic、mm-hmm. relationships are hard、uh, on another level, and yeah, it takes that sort of deep inner work. 
personally and then with each other, right? Like one of the things that, and I'm sure you've experienced this with friend friendships or whatnot, is like we grow when we change as humans, right? And what does that look like in the container of a relationship? Sometimes that means big grief and loss, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's a hard thing, right? Like I've I've personally changed so much throughout my relationship with Jessica. Um like I'm a completely different person and I I, I and so much like I'm so much happier, right? Uh-huh. And I see that it that has to be hard on Jessica in some ways because th- those are big changes, you know. Yeah, is there anything you miss about that that you've changed away from? Hell no. No, I was I was a drunk. I like had no emotional awareness, you know. Uh I was, you know, still like in like early recovery from anorexia. I wasn't medicated from my depression, you know. Wasn't going to therapy, you know. All that stuff. So I am I, I think I'm alive probably because of Jessica because early on she was like, fucking go to therapy. You need to go to therapy. Do it. Yeah. Great. I was going to say she came in at a tough time and must have yeah. gone through a lot herself. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, yes. And I, I am, uh, I'm going to steer the ship back to you because this is, <laughs> this is not about me. How dare you? Uh, you're a fellow podcaster. So, you know, the, you know, the gist, but, um, yeah, it, it it's been lovely and hard and beautiful and and mm-hmm. brights and darks and just as we are, right? Just as humans are. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's a fun question uh, that I haven't asked in a while, but think of a, a seminal moment or two from your life, um, and I want you to share either one or two. Something that sticks out in your memory as being like. This was a Jacqueline moment. It could be from childhood. It could be from young adulthood, early adulthood, whatever it may be. Something like a, this was a moment. This was a memory that sort of contributed or a, is additive to who you are today. I mean, it's, uh, I don't want to say this answer, but it's hard not to say The Bachelor just because that mm. was such a, um, like a cataclysmic event. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I think I'll just, I'll basically say the reason why I'm saying this is because it was a huge event that showed me a lot about who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought of myself as much more bold, courageous, open-minded afterwards. Um, I kind of, I mean, I, I had those qualities before, but it was really a time when I was put to the test in a pretty extreme way. I I felt like I knew I was pretty eyes wide open going in and I did it anyway. I mean, I knew that there was a huge risk of being edited poorly. I knew I was putting Mm. my reputation in the hands of other people. I knew I was going to have to see myself from the third person perspective when at the time it was hard to listen to myself on my voicemail, you know? Mm -hmm. So, wow. Yeah. And I knew that I knew that the online hate could be an issue um, the comparisons could be an issue. I didn't realize how much, but um, yeah, I chose to do it anyway. And I think that that is pretty descriptive of me. It's it's very hard for me to say no to something when I feel nervous about it. Mm. If I feel if I feel actively like dreading it, then that's different. But if I'm feeling nervous, then that's a pretty good sign that I'm hitting on something that could be important. Interesting. 
So what are some of those? I mean, I just full transparency. I've never seen The Bachelor. No, that's fine. I am. I have. <laughs> uh, I have awareness of such a thing, and I yeah. know that it's a popular thing in the world. And so I have no sort of negative or positive associations with it whatsoever. So that's my context and it's where I'm coming from. It's kind of what? nice, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the, I mean, uh, who knows? I was just going to say I'm the number one Bachelor fan, but I'm not. I've never seen it. So um, what in sort of reflecting on that experience, like what what did you learn about yourself? You know, you obviously learned that you have some resilience in you. You have some strength maybe you didn't see before, but what are some other other things? Yeah, I mean, those are the positives. Um, I mean, I guess another positives are like, I, I went in very afraid actually of being in a house with women, especially mm. beautiful women, and felt like I would be ostracized, judged, wouldn't like them. And actually I left with a lot of friends and got through that and it was a fun experience. Um and, um, you know, I started like public speaking after that and, and just being open to a lot of opportunities, which was great. The negative sides were learning how sensitive I am to criticism, mm. um, learning how hurt I was by how my airtime was erased by and large, even though I made it quite far through the show. Um, a lot of comparisons to the other women, a lot mm. of envy, a lot of anger and resentment at production, fate, whatever, because I had gone in being very like, oh, you know, I'll probably make it like two weeks on the show and then I'll be kicked off. Like, whatever. What are the chances that I would go far? I'm, I'm not I'm not this guy's girl, I'm sure. Um, and I was very kind of open to come what may. And then once I got far in the show, it turned to. Well, well, I deserve to go far on the show. And like, so, you know, suddenly I was imagining all these possibilities and this new world was open up to me. And then that was kind of slammed shut when the airtime was erased. Interesting. And so there was yeah. a lot of regret and envy and anger about that. And I didn't like that. You know, I, I didn't like feeling as though I was separate from who I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to be somebody who would say, oh my gosh, I'm just so grateful for what I had. Oh mm -hmm. my gosh. I like... I'm, you know, this is me and I'm so happy for you and all of your success and everything's yeah. coming. And it's been, that's not how it was. <laughs> so, um, that was painful. Yeah. I, I actually, yeah. yeah, I talked to, I started talking to my celebrity crush actually. So that was one of the cooler experiences, even though he wound up ghosting me, but I remember telling him this and he, Hugh Jackman, you mean, uh, Rufus Sewell. No, I was, I was just being silly. Obviously, uh, I didn't. Is it, is it actually Rufus Sewell? Yeah. Oh wow, yeah. actor, right? I think yeah. I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, I mean, I was describing this to him, and he was like, Oh yeah, that's the conflict between ego and God. Like, yeah. Mm. He like he was very familiar with this, you know. Like, yeah, there's, and he didn't mean it in a religious sense, but he's just yeah. like, there's God, there's the values, the ideals, and then there's your your ego, which is sort of. <laughs> Mm -hmm. A bit filthier, you know, a bit mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. caught yeah. up in itself. Yeah. Um, so that was validating, but. That is. Yeah. So like rewinding a, a smidge, going into that experience, what like, what were you telling yourself you were hoping to get out of it? I called it psychological skydiving. I was like, this is just 
too incredible to pass up. It's too, even though it's scary to put your reputation in the hands of others, it's scary to see yourself third person. Um, when you fear something, there is something to gain. So it was about knowing myself more, getting to peek behind the sort of curtains of fame, you know, for a couple of years and see what mm -hmm. is this like vortex that some like, you know, that the, some film of society has gotten to live in. Like, what would it be like to have that experience? I was always kind of um, a junkie for experience. Mm. Like I, I just, I wanted to experience as many things as possible and go on Even growing an adventurous up. person. Morris started once I was in college and beyond growing up, okay. I was pretty sheltered and gotcha. much more anxious, hmm. but, um, but yeah, I, I think, I think when I went to college, I, I very much intended to push out of that. Mm -hmm. um, because I could feel myself sheltered. I would have friends who had just had many more experiences than me, you know, were like smoking at the gas station. And I'm like, <laughs> what are we doing guys? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to, I just wanted to experience and push myself. Um, and yeah, just yeah. learn what there was to learn. I would say, I mean, w was there some, internal resistance from you as you started transitioning from being sheltered to like i'm just gonna get my feet wet and trying to explore because that's a those are stark places you know i think a lot of it was assisted by alcohol to be honest i mean mm. i well uh, there's a couple of things like when i was in high school i decided to study abroad when i was like 16 they didn't accept me they told me how to wait until i was 18 which was mm -hmm. kind of a lie, but the, so, but the point is, is like those seeds had started. Like I, I had started dreaming in high school. Um, and then I did move to Slovakia for a year when I was 18. And so that was pretty much like fly the coop, you know, and mm -hmm. now I'm in this totally different place. And then alcohol, I started drinking pretty early. Um, I'm not an alcoholic. I never like struggled with addiction or anything, but I would say that I'm on the heavier side of, <laughs> Of drinking yeah. um and it's definitely a part of my culture and life so i think that was just such an easy way to facilitate some of these challenges i, I laid for myself because sure. it brings down your inhibitions right yeah so i think combined with like starting college a year later after having this incredible experience that was definitely uncomfortable um and feeling like a little bit more confident and grown up than I had previously mm -hmm. that kind of pushed me out. And then New York was really the final piece where I started interning there over the summer and started dating men who are way older than me and was just like lapping up the experience of um, exciting New York life where I'm this 21 year old, you know, dating a 40 year old essentially. And getting to experience the city in ways that none of my peers were. So wow. I think there was a lot of ego in that too. Like, mm, sure. this is special. This is incredible. I'm on top of the world. Yeah. And then it, it went from there. Yeah. Yeah. I also moved to New York as a early 20 something. Um, mm -hmm. I was there a few years, but what's interesting about the, the bachelor experience you describe and sort of my peripheral view of sort of fame and Hollywood and the systems that play there. It's very similar to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is I'm fine. I'm good. There is a surface yeah. 
performative quality to it that to me, like I, I love stories. I'm a film nerd. I love, I'm a, you know, I had a book themed wedding. Like I'm very much into stories. I have a literature degree. Yeah. And I, I see sort of the empathy and compassion in stories. What, yeah. what strikes me as troubling sometimes is Hollywood's sheen, right? Mm-hmm. And that sort of that layer that could I think is like we're we're we were talking about at the beginning, right? Get deep. That's how you connect. Get real. Be authentic. You know all those things. But when we're witness to things like The Bachelor or things like I don't know, Jessica and I are watching this show, Too Hot to Handle. It's ridiculous, <laughs> and it's very entertaining from a psychological yeah. <laughs> perspective. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there is so much surface that's happening that I feel like is potentially getting in the way of like what's really going on. Yeah. So first of all, literature is my great love too. So can just be there. Um, I think fame is inherently traumatizing and Mm. the sheen is necessary for most of it, for most people. Um, Necessary as like a protective measure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you get attacked, no matter what you say, Sometimes it's easier to not say anything that means too much to you. Sure. Um, it hurts a lot less when you get attacked for saying something, you know, superfluous and superficial mm. than, to, than to say something vulnerable. Um, I also think it's very easy to lose sight of yourself, like lose touch with who you are because you're getting so many messages about yourself from so many different people. Yeah. There's a an urge to please everyone. There's a feeling of being chronically misunderstood. And so that takes its toll. I mean, that's <laughs> that's at the root of things like borderline personality disorder, you know, being constantly invalidated, misunderstood, um, feeling like, yeah. yeah, gaslit, like you can't you can't trust your own opinion of yourself. You don't, mm. you're like, wait, did I do this for these reasons? Am I this kind of person? Am I presenting myself to the world in a way that makes other people cringe and attack? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what option. I mean, it takes, it takes incredible bravery and groundedness, I think, to step out of the sheen and say something that really matters to you. It's interesting when you think about child stars, how stunted in development they seem to be. Mm. And I think it's just because they've literally under undergone a trauma and there's, yeah. and, and it's a trauma that never ends, you know, they're just stuck in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. There is your, I, I didn't think about the, the public sort of role in that trauma too, which is the ongoing piece, which is like the expectations we have of stars and of actors and of whatever, mm-hmm. right? We have an expectation that is rooted in this, you know, dance for me. Like you are like, I'm paying you to perform for me. So, and that feels when I say that out loud, that feels icky um and heartbreaking to me mm-hmm. considering the child stars considering maybe your experiences or others experiences you know um but a- as you said inherent in the art is a sheen too right mm-hmm. is a performance is a protection yeah know? well and you're yeah you're supposed to be inspiring people mm. 
um, inspiring them to want, you know, which is mm. Sheen. Um, because if they want, they'll keep buying, they'll keep coming, they'll keep watching. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I think now there's also this added, when you become famous, and I only experienced it in the smallest bit, so I don't want to be seeming like I'm adding myself to the leagues of actually famous people, but um, you're suddenly told that you have a responsibility to not disappoint anybody. Like mm. if I were to share a political belief, I would probably get some sort of message saying, I'm so disappointed in you. Sure. It's like, you don't know me. Why am I able to disappoint you? Because I believe something different than you. Yeah. Um, you know, mothers get so many messages about, oh, you're taking care of your baby the wrong way. That's not the right way to parent. That's, right. and, and, you know, so even when you share your joys or the things you care about, there's this sense of like, not just, oh, you're stupid and bad and wrong. It's like, you're a disappointment to your audience. You're, mm. how, how could you portray, like, how could you show us this side of you? And so it's like, yeah. well, shit, maybe I shouldn't have. Yeah. Um, and I think once you spend so much time on the defensive and being crafted by other people, it's very difficult to craft yourself and to, to really be, like believe something and, and show that to the world. That makes sense. It makes sense. And I have deep wells of empathy for that experience. I get it. And I also would say, and we need those who will speak mm -hmm. their political views publicly. Right. And, you know, cause otherwise the system will remain like that sort of relationship between public and star will continue to be toxic in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And continue to sort of serve a, a sort of singular one-sided view of what a human is. Right. Yeah. It's very dehumanizing. I want more humanizing experiences. I want, you know, uh, I don't know, Reese Witherspoon to talk about, you know, uh, George Floyd, you know, I want, uh, you know, whatever I want, I want my stars to be bold and out there and lead with their hearts. And, but I, again, I'm not famous. So I know that like, I'm, this is, this is just me. I'm just one human mm -hmm. and I don't have millions of followers and I don't have people and I'm not a woman and I'm not mm -hmm. pregnant and I'm not, you know, all of these things. I have immeasurable amounts of privilege as a white cis man. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we sort of collectively, cause we need all types, right? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean I'm telling you, Jacqueline, you need to talk about your politics. Of course, <laughs> that's not what I mean, but we need all types. We need to we somehow yeah. collectively figure out a way to move the needle toward a more nuanced, mushy, feely, authentic place. Yeah. Well, I think we need to learn how to respect people who aren't exactly what we want them to be, you know? Truly, truly. That's that's what empathy is. Like, right. I, I lead empathy workshops and there's a lot of, I think we, there's a lot we take for granted in empathy and this thing we do as humans, which is so silly. We're like, Oh, I did the empathy thing. I'm going to check that box. <laughs> but the reality is like true meaning. I mean, you know, this you're in mm -hmm. clinical psychology, the true meaningful work happens in a dynamic and ongoing and nonlinear and ever forward, ever backwards, ever up, ever down type of way. It's yeah. not a do these five steps and then you're done, right? Yeah, there has to be sort of a fundamental attitude shift. Truly. 
Yeah. 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 So now that you are this supreme bachelor star, uh, a faded star, a faded star, <laughs> almost, fading fast. <laughs> almost just dust and ash. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're all made of stardust as Carl Sagan reminds us. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you maintaining those boundaries? What do those boundaries look like? Um, one thing that never went well for me was when I tried to use Instagram posts to connect with people because I would be really, um, nervous about it. Just didn't feel like a medium that made any sense to me. So actually the podcast is where, or other people's podcasts is where I go, where it's longer form. It's a conversation. Um, and I am on the other side of a screen from somebody who is respectful and curious and cares. So mm-hmm. I really stick to those mediums for the most part. I don't yeah. I use my Instagram primarily to promote my podcast and to have like fun conversations with people um, that can be a totally like joyful use of Instagram is mm-hmm. chatting with strangers and having fun. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I try. And, and then um, a boundary I had to set for a long time was staying off Reddit because that's where there'd be long threads just tearing apart my friends and me. So. Oh. Yeah, don't, I think general broad rule humans is don't go on Reddit. <laughs> don't ever go on Reddit. Don't spend yeah. any time on Reddit. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. I mean, there's a certain thing in creating boundaries. It's It requires a certain level of self-knowing and figuring mm. out what it is you want and what you're comfortable with, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's also the, just the fact that I'm a therapist means that there have to be boundaries. Like, True. I really can't get too much into politics um, because I've got patients from every end of the spectrum. Sure. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to be posting photos of me in a bikini probably or like anything where people can pick up my body. So in some ways it's, it's a bit of a shield to hide behind. Sure. Other times I'm, I get annoyed with the boundaries. I'm like, but I want to be able to share these parts of my life. Um but it's maybe a bit healthy knowing that I have to think twice before mm-hmm. posting something. <laughs> I think so. I also think, and I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about it. I've witnessed as someone who's been in therapy for the past decade and is friends with many therapists who are big stars on Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. The sort of changing of the guard a little bit in terms of how therapists present, you know, there used to be this mm-hmm. sort of stuffy, like... Mm, you know, sit on my couch and I'm not going to give you an ounce, but I feel like we're shifting a bit toward a little bit more sort of whole humanity. Like certainly I have clear boundaries because legally that's important Yeah, and I need to protect myself. Uh, but also I'm human and I can show up with, with a little bit of my myself too, you know? Yeah. Are you a therapist? No, I'm not a therapist. I just oh, have okay. lots of therapist friends. Oh, see, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it's been very interesting for Duke, my program to, uh, decide to accept me and then deal with the ramifications of that. Um, because there was ramifications, you know, multiple of my patients have recognized me Mm. and it has not been a problem, not even a little bit of a problem, but there was a lot, there was a lot of fear on the part of uh, the other students and kind of the old guard of what would happen in that, in that case, or, you know, if people 
a lot of concerns about like, what if I post something culturally insensitive on Instagram? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was, people were picking apart my pictures, like looking for anything that they could point out for a while. Mm. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, just in general, like what about having, what about teaching students? What are they going to think if you're like walking around the somewhat public figure or this like Instagram? And um, it's just funny because it, I haven't seen any practical negative consequences. Um, In fact, I probably see more positive consequences, but there's definitely a shift happening between like super, super private therapists and also this whole like mental health awareness, cultural movement where a ton of therapists are going online to share content, to share little bits of themselves. And that's getting them far and building their now there's like a way of like building your brand as a therapist as before as a psychology today profile. So it's just, it's, we're in a midpoint and some people are uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But to, to use your sort of one of your life ethos is if if it, if it feels a little uncomfortable or a little scary, maybe lean into it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think of like my friend Lisa Oliveira or, Vanessa Bennett, Danae Selkin, like so many, uh, Sahar Martinez, like people who are therapists like you, and they're also building their brand and they're building their, you know, you know, Lisa Mm. just had published a book, right? Like, so it's, it's meaningful and useful. um, And when it comes to social media, yeah, it requires some pretty clear physical and probably emotional boundaries as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in this clinical PhD program now. When mm-hmm. is when's you, when do you finish? Do you know? Do you have a TBD date or a end yeah. date? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I am halfway through my third year now of five total at Duke, and then there's an internship year. So okay. after that internship year is when I graduate and get my my doctorate. Um, and so I guess what that's three three and a half more years i don't do numbers this is not this is like (laughs) it's really six (laughs) yeah there you go six minus two and a half is three yeah i i mean i mentioned before i'm a i'm a book guy i I don't do numbers (laughs) (laughs) no i don't like numbers either statistics was a bitch to get through yeah um yeah and then typically you have to do postdoc for two years to get up licensure hours i don't I'm not going an academic path. So um, I think I'll mm-hmm. get my postdoc and then go into private practice. So yeah, it'll feel? be a while. Because <laughs> isn't which, your, I think I read that your mom is in the mental health field. Yeah, she was a psychiatrist. She's retired now. Okay. Yeah, for a long time. So I took a kind of a winding path to get here because, um, you know, growing up, a, I thought of psychiatrists as superior to psychologists, mm-hmm. even though my mom, maybe when I was really young, she pushed that, but then she became incredibly disillusioned by psychiatry and was like, no, I would never push, like, I would never want you to go into psychiatry. Psychology mm-hmm. is a much better, more interesting career at this point. Um, but so I, I just, I was like, I can't get into med school. I can't like be a lesser version of my mom. <laughs> and then she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this not a lesser version and also you'd be awesome at this um 
But yeah, I went into tech at first. I was a philosophy major in college and had like, when I went into tech, it was like four years of, you know, studying philosophy and, you know, the big whys of life. Why mm-hmm. are we? Who are we? How best yeah. to live? And going straight into industry was one of the most unfulfilling, uh, deadening experiences <laughs> ever. Talk about uh, stark differences between those spaces. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was pretty miserable. I mean, I went into tech mostly for the lifestyle because I love New mm. York and I had had fun there as a college student intern. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that that quickly died uh, when it came to the job. So yeah, I became like super depressed during that time. Um, I have a lot of insecurity around my own con- like competence and capability. Mm. Um, got pretty bad ADHD, although I wasn't I wasn't conceptualizing it as such back then. Mm-hmm. Um, my brain absolutely seems to just reject anything it doesn't find interesting, <laughs> which is really frustrating because sometimes you need to learn things that you don't find interesting. Yes. Yes. Um, I remember David Foster Wallace in the pale, um, the pale King, which is about the IRS and people who work there mm-hmm. said something like the most powerful person on the planet is the person who can be bored for hours on end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I'm not powerful. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was just thinking a lot about mental health. I was thinking about my depression constantly. So I was like, well, I clearly get off on thinking about this all day mm-hmm. long. So what if I tried doing this? And, um, and yeah, and then had to build up my resume and move home and take classes again. And so getting to be here is phenomenal. I mean, I, it, it was really a shift in how I saw myself, how I could talk about myself, um, how I could see myself in relation to other people. Mm. So, and like, I'm, I'm studying the wise again, you know, which is what I wanted to get back to. There you go. Yeah, you are. Yeah. And it's very clear to me that you are competent. You're in a graduate program. Not not many can do that, um, right? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting part of it all, right? Is that on the one hand, um, I just feel like I'm totally flailing when I do so many so many things, mm-hmm. and I just like look at it. I mean, like I can't drive a car. Um, I, I just like I, I immediately ask for help. That's one of my more annoying qualities, mm-hmm. um, building things, putting things together, even chores. Like I take the slowest possible route to get anything done. Um, research is a bit of a nightmare. I just, I'm like, I don't understand statistics, I mean, all these things. And then on the other hand, I'm getting my PhD at Duke university. So it's like, how, yeah. what are those two yeah. <laughs> realms and how do they fit together? You're making it work. I guess. And yeah, I, it's very hard to get of- fired. <laughs> I think some of that is maybe your ADHD brain, right? Mm-hmm. So Jessica, my my wife, she was she's 40, I'm 40. She was just told by a doctor that that they said she thinks she has ADHD and Jessica was like, "Oh my god, I think that makes some sense." Yeah, pieces start coming together, huh? <laughs> right? You know, so um I think with that framework there has to be a little compassion right and, yeah. and understanding that yeah it's going to be a bit messy or a bit scattered here and there but yeah you're doing it that's amazing yeah. so yeah. what it, like what in the field right now really lights your brain up like what's really exciting so 
the problem is, is that I've been pulled away from what really excites me for a long time because I've been mm-hmm. working on this endless project. And um, I've also been working on my advisor's research, which is something that's a little bit less interesting to me. But I'm about to return to my area, which is borderline personality disorder and personality disorders, cluster B more generally. I'm really interested in narcissism. Mm. Um, it's probably why fame is so interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in the emotion of shame. I'm really interested in mm. contempt and why people are so contemptuous of each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to borderline personality disorder, I'm really interested in the sense of identity because people with BPD tend to have a really fractured sense of self. Yeah. And, um, and that can make interpersonal relationships really, really hard. Like, yeah. wh- who am I in this relationship? Who am I in this other way? What, what, what obtains mm-hmm. over time to the anything? Um, and so that can introduce a lot of chaos. And I think I'm, I'm kind of hypothesizing that that can have can create problems for empathy because mm. if you don't have a solid place to stand, it can sure. potentially be difficult to understand another person's mind and emotional state because it's been so hard to understand your your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fair hypothesis. Hypothesis. Yeah, I I don't I don't know a ton about BPD. Uh, but what I've read and maybe sort of witnessed on a tertiary level is just that there's sort of across the board, the mental health perspective is that it's it's tough. It's yeah, like tough. a tough nut to crack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The good news is there's a really good therapy for it. It was mm. it was long thought of as un- un- incurable. Mm. Um, and then a woman came along named Marsha Linehan who um, developed this treatment originally marketed as a sort of parasuicidal treatment for women. And then she later kind of adapted it for BPD and then admitted that she had BPD herself. And so okay. that, that was, wow. you know, why, part, why in part she was able to understand this. And um, she came to this treatment, I believe after extensively studying um, Eastern spirituality. And, uh, mm-hmm. so there's an important mindfulness component for instance, Yeah, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a year long treatment. That's far longer than most manualized treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a group component, an individual component, a phone coaching component, and there's a component where the therapists all sort of therapize each other because mm-hmm. it's really tough to work with that population. Yeah. That's um, great. But it's also, I mean, it's, it's really, it besides psychosis it's the one i wouldn't want to have you know it's really really rough on the people who suffer from it yeah yeah i i'm grateful that it's a research topic of yours because i i think i i have a brother who has schizoaffective disorder a younger Mm. brother gosh that's yeah it's tough right yeah it's tough and i i think about populations like him or folks with uh, bpd and the human need to connect and to want to be seen and understood and if there are things whether it's psychosis or disorder that are getting in the way of that on on a fundamental foundational level heartbreaking to me it's heartbreaking yeah bpd is pretty defined too by extreme fear of abandonment Mm. um and real i mean a really deep emotionality it's kind of like people living with nerves on the outside of their skin they just yeah. feel everything including positive emotions sometimes which is mm-hmm. the an upside it, it just like a million degrees more than other people yeah wow yeah wow so 
you're getting your PhD. Uh, that's going to happen five, six years. We we don't do numbers here on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and as part of that, you recently started a podcast. Tell me a little bit about where that came from and a little bit about the show. Yeah. So um, a little help for our friends is a mental health podcast. Um, we, you know, we bring evidence-based research and tips and skills to various disorders and processes. That's a big bulk of it. We also have guest experts typically when we don't know enough about a certain topic. Um, and then sometimes we have more personal guests, but really what we, you know, what we aim at is to have a segment where we help other people understand their loved ones who are struggling. So it's, you know, it's about how can we help our listeners empathize with the people who are struggling in their lives? And also how can we help them empathize with themselves? Mm -hmm. You know, like it's tough. It's tough having family members or best friends um, who are, you know, really, really suffering or making choices you can't understand or not seeking treatment. And so, really talking to people about setting boundaries and, um, you know, ways that they can talk to their friends, validate their friends and, um, how to help them find the proper treatment. That's wonderful. And how has been doing a podcast for you? Oh, it's been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, my co-host is someone I have a lot of, I guess, mental chemistry with. Mm -hmm. So, um, I honestly sometimes feel like I learn more doing my podcast than I do in classes or (laughs) just because it's so, it's so easy to engage with. It's so Mm -hmm. easy to like exercise my, my mind with this content because I'm with somebody else who just bounces back so easily. And then when we have guests, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, I have this hour of uninterrupted time to really understand you and pick your brain and learn from you. So I've absolutely loved it. And we've, we've, been told by quite a few people that they have gotten into therapy, rehab, ended toxic relationships. So it's nice to really see. It's the best. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, I love the medium of podcasting and I think your framework regarding like talking to these people and then those people can, you know, the listener can reflect back on their own experiences or their own child or their own partner or whatever it mm-hmm. may be and understand them a bit better. Ah, what a gift that is. I just, <laughs> it fills my heart. Yeah, yeah. I hope that's what people are taking. Yeah, I think they are. I think they are. <laughs> um, what fascinates you about narcissism? Because <laughs> like, this is a topic for me, Jacqueline, that's mm-hmm. like, like I think I hold some baggage around because my father Yeah. I don't know is if he has the disorder of narcissism. Mm-hmm. Personality disorder. Is it a personality disorder? Yep. But deeply narcissistic and mm-hmm. deeply traumatizing to me growing up. So mm-hmm. I I think I still hold a lot of I trust women more just implicitly because of Mm -hmm. that experience i men have to work harder to earn my trust right um i am i have a like a a physical revulsion to any sort of semblance of ego (laughs) to the point where i'm probably like stepping on my own toes in the process right so (laughs) i'm curious from your perspective what fascinates you about it yeah, so I will say that fascination uh, does not equal 
me loving narcissists. Yes, <laughs> like, of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, I honestly, I, I just find it a fascinating process. I mean, every narcissism is a protection mechanism. You know, mm-hmm. it's a protection mechanism that has become so rigid that it's literally become like armor that has fused onto the body of the person who's wearing it. Mm-hmm. Um, at the heart of narcissism is typically a huge injury, emotional injury, mm. um, often experiences of being shamed or abandoned or neglected early on in life, where um, a lot of trust is lost in other people, a kind of rigid self-sufficiency and a an intense feeling of shame mm. at being unloved, unwanted, left, yeah. um, you know, criticized constantly. And so it just really, it, it just really interests me about how this, this armor is built, you know, how it becomes so difficult to take off and how it, sometimes it is lowered a little bit. And then that narcissistic injury happens and then it's this immediate mm-hmm. lash out, yeah. which is actually really resembles what, how shame operates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, shame, you know, is such, it's such a painful experience that some people are more prone to guilt, you know, they'll say, oh my gosh, and it probably, especially people with high confidence, high sense of self-efficacy, um, a lot of self-love mm-hmm. are more likely to say, oh my gosh, I hurt you. I'm yeah. so, oh, I'm sorry, but, but I know that I'm a good person that I can fix this behavior and I can rectify this. Um, people who are more shame prone might actually have a lot less self-love and mm-hmm. they might hear rejection in criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, they might experience this this injury as just anathema to anything they're allowed to feel because when they felt that in the past it was so crushing yeah. and um and so they react immediately by saying oh no no i can't experience this i'm going to replace it with anger and i'm going to push it out yeah. and i'm not going to beat myself up i'm going to redirect this and say how how dare you make me feel this way you're wrong yeah hmm. and so hmm. yeah but it's hard it's hard to treat yeah, I can see how, and I, I appreciate your perspective, you know, um, it just makes me think about how knowledge can also bridge the gap to empathy, right? So mm-hmm. I, I'm coming to you, Jacqueline, with this perspective or a singular experience, right, of a human that was a sort of crucial part of my upbringing, right? Mm-hmm. And and explaining to you, I have sort of qualms and baggage and things like that, right? And at the same time, you're telling me like, look, there's there's this armor that's happening and there's this wound that's happening. And that tells me, that gives me sort of window a window into like this human, right? That they're struggling yeah. too, right? That it's not, you know, and I, I think that's just an important reminder for all of us is like knowledge can bridge the gap to empathy too. It can, but what it can also do is I would never suggest to you, therefore you should forgive your father or therefore you should open up a relationship. And then I think that's what happens though. A lot of times with empaths is they say, Oh my gosh, this person's hurting. Okay. Then I'll make excuses for their behavior. Then I'll continue to let them abuse me. And instead what a lesson could be is like, I'm going to, I'm going to accept who he is. And I'm also going to accept that the things he did weren't about me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and empath- I always say it, empathy without boundaries is just self-destruction. Yeah. Like you Yeah. Um I've I've taken my helper response too far and I know that I need to do I need to create boundaries with with that helper sort of mm-hmm. people pleasy response that I grew up with, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. 
I, I was just talking to someone and I wonder if you can relate to this, uh, you know, being like you, I am a big feely hearted sort of like <laughs> heart of my sleeve human, right? Mm. I'd imagine you relate to some of that as someone who's in the field of psychology, you're a therapist, you care about others, right? I do. Although I'm very boundaried. Good, because I think with I think with big hearted people comes mm -hmm. big grief and loss, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I would say that my cognitive empathy is actually higher than my affect empathy, and mm. um, there's probably all sorts of reasons for the, that. That is like maybe less flattering. But um, what I really bring to clinical work is non judgment. You know, you can tell me pretty much anything, and it, it won't I won't flinch. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is crucial. And I also think that that's how I'm emp empathic, you know, like mm. I'm not going to make you feel shame because I accept that you're your own person and that, mm -hmm. you know, you are who you are for, for good reasons. Um, I might wish that you change. Um, I might try to make somebody like my partner change, you know, because <laughs> it's such a close, but to me, the kindness that I can do to others is to accept them and not judge them and yeah. help them understand themselves a little bit better and just, you know, try to change the, their behavior so they get better consequences in life. I think the problem with a lot of therapists is that they get compassion burnout. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they can't, it's important for a therapist to be able to hold the, the patient's trauma, you know, yeah. for the patient to know, I can tell you this and you're not going to lose it. It's not yeah. going to be another person that I have to protect mm -hmm. from what happened to me. Yes. Um, and so that's another thing I offer, but yeah, I think somewhere along the way, you know, I, I engaged in some self protective beliefs or behaviors and put up some walls. This has been an issue in romantic relationships, but um, yeah, I, I think in therapy, it can work really well to, to have a bit of dis emotional distance so you can just keep doing it yeah. and sleep at night. Yeah. Do you, do you like to talk about this stuff, psychology, mental health with your, your partner? Yeah. Um, he's a psychologist also, but he's a cognitive psychologist. And okay. so we're very different people and he's an academic, he's a researcher. So he's very much like, <laughs> I have a hypothesis. Okay. Now let's test it. And so it'll be really irritating sometimes because I'm like, uh, you know, I'm upset about X, Y, and Z. And he's like, okay, you should try uh, ABC. You, you, uh, well, sure. you should, and then he'll get really irritated with me when I'm not looking for solutions. Mm -hmm. Um, cause he's like, well, then I don't understand why you're complaining. Just stop yep. complaining. Like if you don't want to do anything about it, then why? so it's taking the fixer. <laughs> the fixer. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. We have to, we have to work through that sometimes. Yeah. But <laughs> I've been there. I've been there myself. Yeah. It's fun mm -hmm. to, it's, I think it's easier to want to fix if you have a solution, right? Yeah. But the the real hard work is, yeah, like being present and witness to just being listening, just being a listening person, right? Yep. Um, yeah, getting comfortable with Jessica saying that she's struggling or I'm looping into my anxiety or whatever, and I, I'm not there to fix it because I know I can't sometimes. Mm. Maybe there are sometimes solutions, but often there aren't. And it's just about me being present and seeing her. Yeah. I mean, that's why we have this bent to our podcast, right? Is it's an incredibly helpless and uh, just 
it, it sucks to feel useless, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, when somebody's suffering. Um, and it's yeah. it's hard. It's hard to let silence just be silence. It's hard to let the pauses linger. It's hard to just hold somebody's hand. Yeah. And so we wanted to help people with that. And it's something that, yeah, I don't know if I was always that good at it. I think I used to be kind of solution mode too. And it's something I've had to learn through, through doing therapy. Yeah. Takes practice like anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jacqueline, uh, we always wrap up the show talking about our empathy heroes. So folks in our lives, even characters from stories uh, who are compassionate, empathetic, feely, people i will go first to give you a moment to think about yours um i my empathy empathy heroes this week i mentioned them before it's the entire season five of queer Queer eye (laughs) Uh, yeah this show just i think i've mentioned queer eye before in the past as an empathy hero but this show is just so life-affirming it fills my heart i cry pretty much every episode it's it's what I want the world to be, right? Yeah. Uh, I want to be BFFs with all of those. I want to be BFFs with the Fab Five mm-hmm. so much. I've even like contemplated <laughs> how can I like take, let's just get drunk again, known. Let's like go, let's start self harming again. Let's go down the deep dive so I can bring the Fab Five in here to like turn my oh, life God. around. I mean, that's <laughs> terrible. It's awful. I would never do that. But. I want to, I I love them so much. Mm -hmm. I've I've been there in my imagination. Anyways, they're my empathy heroes. They they truly know how to show up for people, meet them where they are, and uh, with such love and attention, I love them. Okay, so two things come to mind. One is Esther Perel. I'm sure you've heard her a million times. Wonderful, Yeah. yeah. I actually, both of my answers kind of have a similar bent to them, which is that, um, they both accept flaws um, and aren't afraid of them. And in fact, normalize them in a way. So she, I mean, she's, you know, one of her areas of expertise is infidelity. Mm -hmm. She is incredibly adept at getting to just, you know, the guts of someone like she just gets it. She, you know, she doesn't use shame, but she, um, she commands a lot of respect. People, I think, want to be better people when they're around her. Mm-hmm. And she really has taken something. She's good at taking stigma and turning it out around and showing people like this can be stigmatized, but 80% of you are all doing it. So let's Interesting. let's yeah. start looking at it instead. Yeah. And um, yeah, I also wish she could be my therapist, but also be a fab. So I'm yes. like, what if I, I should just go pick a fight with Paul? So we have to go to couple scouting. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm going to go with the movie, The Lion King. I know that's not a person, okay. okay. but I think this is one of the most, like the movies that most understands the, the human journey, Um, Mm. you know, from taking this like little kid who is full of himself and who, (laughs) you know, doesn't understand his own, you know, good fortune in a way is cocky, um, but like looks up to this hero of a father and then has to meet his maker in a way when his, when his idol is gone, when his, mm-hmm. um, you know, where, where his, where his, when his North star is gone, like, how do I live now? What are my values? Who am I? What now? How could I possibly pick up the mantle of responsibility yeah. and then dipping into, you know, the hedonism of adolescence and, um, <laughs> you know, Akuna being Matata. Akuna Matata, just 
eating and partying and looking at the stars. I mean, that's everybody's twenties, you know, and then all of a sudden realizing, no, wait, I've outgrown this. I need to confront my responsibility, my duty in my life Mm. and, and going and picking it up, even though it's hard. So I always just thought that movie was phenomenal, even though it's an animated children's. It's fantastic. I love the Lion King. I, that's a brilliant choice and such a, I mean, it, you bringing it up reminds me I need to rewatch that one. Right? Yeah. It's been a while for me too. I remember seeing that in the theaters, you know, what when, when mm-hmm. I think it came out in 94. I think so, so too, yeah. So I would have been 13 years old at that point. Uh oh. yeah, seeing it in theaters and being like, "Yes, this is this is what my heart needs." I can I can I honestly well up at the first scene of the movie where all of these animals are are just walking in this really like plodding manner towards mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. ceremony to meet their new, I mean, to, to meet the new generation and to all come yeah. together. And this just, this just journey of like, let's, let's meet our new world together. It's just, it's, it's so well done. Yeah. <laughs> it's so well thought out. Jeremy Irons is amazing. I mean, mm. oh yeah, one of the best <laughs> villains ever. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Good one. Well, this was delightful. Uh, where, where Jacqueline, where can folks connect with you? Obviously listen to a little help for our friends, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the podcast is on any, you know, any place you find podcasts and my Instagram is Trumbolina. It's T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L-I-N-A. So yeah, you can DM me there. We'll chat. Amazing. Well, this was delightful. Thank you for yes, thank you for being a part of thank for being a feely human. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, you for inviting yeah. me to be yeah, in my feels. Of course. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot, we have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Oh